Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Welcome back, listeners, to the Irish Passport Half Pints, the extra content we make especially to thank our Patreon supporters. In this edition, we're bringing you our full interview with Bulalani Mafako, a resident of the Nakalishian Direct Provision Centre just outside Limerick City, who featured on our episode about direct provision in January 2020. Direct provision is a system of accommodation for asylum seekers in the Republic of Ireland. It's been running for about 20 years, and for much of that time, it has been the object of serious criticism, both within Ireland and internationally. If you want to hear more about the history of direct provision, and why it's so controversial in Ireland right now, you can go back and tune in to our full episode titled Direct Provision. But for now, I'll hand you over to Naomi at Nakalishin. A quick warning, this interview touches on issues of sexual violence. A quick note too, that since we recorded this interview, some of the facts and figures that we mention might have changed. So we're here in the rather wet and miserable surroundings of Nakalishin Direct Provision Centre, which is on the outskirts of Limerick City, though it's technically in Clare. Um, the rain is pelting down outside. And uh, yeah, I came here to find out a little bit more about what it's like living in a place like this and, and this system. So can I ask you just, first question is the easiest one. Can you introduce yourself, who you are, uh, where you're from, how old you are? And uh, wh- where are we sitting? I am Bulilani Mfaiko. I'm from Cape Town in South Africa. I am 25 years of age and I have been 25 for many years. So I started living here in Nokulishin in County Clare. And I moved in here in December 2017. So I've been here since then. I've been waiting and waiting for an interview. And then after the interview, I'll have to wait for a decision. So I don't know how long that will take. So to someone who's not familiar with the term direct provision, we have a lot of international listeners and obviously this is a system that's quite specific to Ireland. How would you explain it to someone who's just learning about it for the first time? Um, I think some people may be familiar with it as well in other parts of the EU because a lot of them would call it differently. So they would have something that called reception centres where people stay in reception centres and wait for their asylum to be processed. Whereas... The only difference then becomes, well, how long do people stay there? So in some countries like Germany, they wouldn't take for like years to issue a decision, for example. You can get a decision in as quick as four days, depending on where you come from, or a couple of months, maybe six to seven months. Um, but here you can wait. I've been waiting for one year, for example, in Ireland's uh, reception. Uh, you get a reception center, which is Balseskin, uh, the, the main reception center, where person lands in Ireland and applies for asylum, they would be taken to Balseskin. You spend about four to five days in Bal- four or five weeks in Balseskin. And while you're there, you would be orientated with the Irish uh, asylum process. So they would also offer you something like a medical uh, screening. There are voluntary blood tests that you can take if you wish to. Um, and once that is cleared, you can then be dispersed to another uh, accommodation center that's anywhere in the country. You don't get to choose where in the country it will be. So some of them are quite in uh, very remote places. I was in Ruski recently and uh, 
There's not even a public transport system there in the town. There's only one store, Centra, and then there's one pub, and that's it. There's nothing in the town. Like It becomes very difficult then to live uh, life if you're going to be spending that a long time in a place like that. So in Ireland, they would take you from Balsaskin to the direct provision center where you would be spending uh, a long time waiting for them to make a decision on your asylum. So just to describe a little bit what it's like, it looks like it could be a school maybe or something like that. It's a few sort of buildings, a complex of buildings. And this is where people sleep, where they eat. You're not allowed to make your own food. It's all provided. And you get a little bit of money each week, but a very small amount. And you just are put here, often in very remote places, like even this place is very far down a kind of country road with no shop in walkable distance or any kind of facility like that. Um, and you just wait here until the system processes your asylum claim. So what's it, what's life like here? How would you describe it? Um, it's a bit awful, as you said. It's remote because you don't have much of a social life, for example. If you are given food, you the only thing that you need to know is when to get your breakfast in the morning. Uh, that's at 8 o'clock, and then you get your lunch, and then you get your dinner. You have to know those meal times. If you miss your meal time, you might well starve because you only get 21.60 per week. And there aren't that many shops around here. So the bus that takes us into city centre goes three times a day. And that's one at 10 o'clock, and then there's one at 1, and then there's another one at 4.45. It only stays in the city centre for 15 minutes so. Um, you have to get whatever it is you need to get in the city centre in that 15 minutes or else you'll wait hours and hours for the next bus. If you wanted to take a taxi, it would cost you 24 euro. We get 21.60 per week. So 24 euro on a taxi ride in a day, you would, you're not going to spend that. So um, it's quite awful. It also depends on who you are as a person. So some people who come in, uh, into Ireland uh, seeking asylum don't speak the English language. So they might want to access English language courses. They would have them in Limerick city centre. So for the first few weeks or months or so that they are in the system, they are able to do those courses. Once you are able to, learn, to speak English, then you actually get quite bored because there's nothing else to do for you. You wake up every single day. It's like a prisoner's routine. You wake up, eat, shower, and sleep. Um, you may play football if it's a sunny day, but it's, you're not going to be playing football in the rain. But those who like football may play football. You see guys playing in the summer. Um, there's a, commun- a common room in the center. Um, you can play pool, but you can only play pool so, for so many times, like especially if you're here for years. Um, when I moved in here in my room, there was a guy who was fixing the television in the room, and I asked him, um, how long do people normally stay here? And he said the guy who was staying in the room that I'm in spent 10 years there, and I just couldn't imagine my life. 10 for years? 10 years, in, yeah. So imagine spending a decade. You don't get that life back once you've lost, because you're not allowed to work for starters when you... Uh, immediately apply for asylum. So life changes. I used to work, I used to study, um, and I worked and studied at the same time. So I was doing a PhD and I was uh, working for Uptran in the teaching council. So every single day, life had a meaning, it had purpose. I woke up every single day, I was looking forward to work. I knew what tasks I would do when I would get to work, and I knew what academic text I would be reading for my thesis. But now the only thing I wake up and look for, for is just worry about not missing breakfast. Because if I miss breakfast, I'm going to starve until lunchtime. Do, do you have any facilities here? Like, I don't know, a library or any classes or anything like that? Uh, library would be in the city centre, the good one. And then there's one down the road in, uh, in Mayros. I haven't been there because I used to live in, in Dublin. So we, we had a 
a state-of-the-art facility in Dunleary. It's a new library. It's just recently built. But it didn't have access to all my academic books and journals that I needed. So you can imagine a small village like this. It wouldn't have all the things that I would need to actually complete my studies. So I had to stop my, uh, my studies. I couldn't continue. What's your subject, if you don't want me asking? Um, I studied uh, public administration and politics. So can you tell me how you ended up in Ireland in the first place and what that process was? I lived in, uh, I was born in the Eastern Cape in South Africa. And when I lived there, well, there was a study recently that said um, it's one of the most homophobic places in South Africa. It's where you're most likely to be bitten, kicked or, or, or killed. If you are a gay person, an openly gay person, or you're suspected of being gay or trans or anything like that in the LGBT plus community. So I, I grew up there. I spent about, uh, I think I only moved in 2001, but life was a bit, uh, in general, in rural South Africa, you would want to move, especially if you're young, you want to move to urban areas. But I had the added burden of wanting to move because of homophobia as well. So I wanted to get out of the rural place. I left the village in 2001, and I moved to Cape Town. Cape Town is perceived to be South Africa's gay capital. So we have pride, we have bigger prides than other cities in South Africa. And so I thought it would be nice and friendly. So I moved to Cape Town and I had family there. Great. I lived in Cape Town since 2001. But over time, uh, we started noticing an increase in violence against LGBT plus people. So lesbians would have been raped. They call it corrective rape. So men target lesbians and rape them to show them what they are missing. And then we started seeing a lot of murders as well of LGBT plus people. And if about five or six years ago, we had a gang that existed for the sole purpose of hunting and killing gay men. So through all those experiences, you start to wonder if you're going to be the next one on the list of being uh, on the news. I would have experienced some of that. I had stones thrown at me once. I was walking with my boyfriend from the movies. We were walking home after watching a movie. And we had stones thrown at us. And that made it even more real because I've, I would have read about people being stoned to death uh, because of their sexual orientation in Cape Town. And at one, at one stage in my university, I just moved into the university, well, my second year in university, a transgender student was bitten to a pulp in the, in the university by other students. The security guard on campus watched. They did absolutely nothing. So when you walk on, into the campus, you worry about the, next pe the person next to you. Were they there when they were, were they part of the group that was watching and laughing when somebody else was being beaten or maybe they were doing the beating themselves? So you start to worry about things happening to you. And the more you read about the, that happening around you, the more you get worried, the more you get scared. And so I, I increasingly became desperate to leave the place. I didn't want to be there. Like I, I, I never wanted to have that worry that I might be killed because of my sexual orientation because well, we have courts, we have police, but that's nice. They're not going to bring me back if I'm dead because of my sexual orientation. So I was like, I wanted to get out of there. So I increasingly got desperate. And the first thing I thought of, well, one, I'm too poor to afford a plane ticket. How am I going to get out of this place? And if I do get out, where do I go? And so I first thought, well, I'm studying. If I do well on my studies, I could apply for study abroad opportunities and never come back to this place if I get one. I started sending out applications. I would apply to study in the UK. I would have applied to study in Germany. I would have applied to study in New Zealand. I got offers from all of them, but the only one that came with uh, full course funding was one for Ireland. One of my professors recommended that I go to Ireland. I was like, okay, that's it. I'm going to Ireland. But things got complicated because 
when I signed uh, the scholarship agreement was that on arrival, I would study, for example, and then get to go home. So you have to leave after you, you're done studying. And that was quite stressful, but I, I studied and finished studying. And I figured that if I saved some of the subsistence allowance that I was given, I could fly to South Africa, get to the airport and buy another plane ticket back. <laughs> so I have a boarding pass to prove that I left Ireland and I sent them the boarding pass. And I did that. I studied, finished, got on a plane, traveled to Cape Town. In the Cape Town, I started searching for flight. I couldn't get one, and sadly, on the same day. So you actually never left the airport? Uh, no, I, the intention was to never leave the airport. Yeah. But while I was in the airport, I think I would spend about two hours searching for the cheapest flight I could get back. Uh, I would have searched for it while I was still here as well, but I couldn't find one that was affordable enough uh, because I wasn't exactly loaded. So the, I got one. I left here. I arrived in South Africa on the 31st. I think I left on the month end of August of 2016. And I got... The only time I got a flight was on the 5th of September. So after five days being there, I got a flight back. Life was a bit tough getting back because one, I had no, I didn't want to uh, apply for asylum because I had read a lot about direct provision system and I would have read about people committing suicide in the system. So I first thought, well, my student permission is still valid. I will use that and then find some work while I search for an alternative to the asylum process. So I approached the Department of Justice and ask them for a status called permission to remain. The minister has discretionary power to grant permission to remain to any uh, non-EU citizen of good character or on the grounds of humanitarian, uh, they call humanitarian it? reasons. Yes, something like that. Yes, I applied for that on on the, using the same reasons that I would have used to apply for asylum, but I never got a response except to say that we acknowledge receipt of your application. And so I would have consulted other organizations while working. I would have consulted other organizations, uh, such as the Immigration Council and the Irish Refugee Council, asking them about the, the asylum process. I then went to the International Protection Office and I would have asked them the same. I wanted to know if I could apply for permission to remain without applying for um, asylum, because they also process permission to remain. If you're, you have three levels of protection, so you can either get UN Convention refugee status or subsidiary protection, or you can get permission to remain from the International Protection Office as well. So I approached them and asked them if they would process only up, uh, the application for permission to remain without uh, going through the asylum process because I want to end up in a direct provision system. So I then was left with no other alternative except to apply for protection. But when I was in South Africa, uh, one of the things that scared me even more, uh, a lesbian couple who had been married for three years was uh, murdered. They were raped, they were murdered, and they were bent in their car. So the, the situation became even more urgent to actually need uh, apply for international protection. So I got here, and I, since I applied for protection, I've been living in this hellhole for several months. I think it's just over a year now. Uh, waiting for an interview. My interview is scheduled for March. It was scheduled for December. They moved it to March for no reason. I have no idea what the decision will be after the interview, but having to live in a place like this is quite awful because when I first moved in here, my first roommate was quite homophobic. Uh, when he learned that I'm gay, he told me straight up he doesn't like that shit. And he said, boys are supposed to be with girls and things like that. And I was quite... 
I was very angry because we were forced to share that space and I didn't want to share that intimate space with anybody. You don't have much of a privacy when you live in this place and you don't have much personal autonomy. Uh, so you have no agency over your life. You don't control pretty much anything in your life because well, they say you're free to walk, but you're going to, you're free to live, but where, what are you going to do if you're not allowed to work? What are you? There's just fields around, basically. It's green grass, like what are you going to do? Life lost meaning. Um, lost sense of purpose when I moved in here. Um, I would have had homophobic slurs from uh, the canteen, and I wrote to the International Protection Office and told them that I was hearing homophobic slurs while queuing for food in the center, and they did absolutely nothing. So they couldn't be bothered. The only thing they do is take your application, shift you off to a direct provision center if anywhere in the country, and wait for them to call you. Do you have any theories about why it all takes so long? Is it to do with incompetence? Is it a strategy to try and try and dissuade people from taking this route? Or what's your kind of assessment of it? Well, I was certainly dissuaded because it took me quite a while to even uh, apply for protection. When the Republic of Ireland established the system of direct provision, uh, I think about 18 years ago, one of the, th- uh, the, the reasons why they established it was to curb uh, widespread welfare fraud because they said a lot of people were coming to seek asylum in Ireland because they wanted to have access to Irish welfare. And they wanted an asylum system that greatly resembles whatever it is in, uh, in the UK. In the same in the UK, they are not allowed to work. I think now they would only be allowed to work after 12 months, whereas here they introduced a new scheme that would allow people to work after nine months if you haven't had a first census decision. But even that is still restrictive because I'm a trained bureaucrat, can't work in the public service, but I'm trained to work in the public service. And that a lot of employers don't even know that permit. I've sent it to a lot of employers. The interview process goes well until you get to the immigration part. Well, do you have a permission to work here? What stamp is it? No, it's not a stamp. What do you mean it's not a stamp? It's a piece of paper I got from the Department of Justice that says I can work here. And it imposes certain rules like uh, you have to have at least half of your staff being from the EU. And if it's less, then you can't employ a person without permission. And that was imported from the work permit legislation in Ireland, which was was actually enacted to control economic migrants. So when you take that and you put it on asylum seekers, you're actually barring them from actually working. And there are other restrictions, like you can't get a driving license. People who want to avail of self-employment get it, find it very difficult then to travel, especially if you live in a place like this, there's no public transport. So even if you could work and you could find uh, work, it would be very difficult to actually get to work. So, so the issue of processing the claims of people who are claiming international protection and the system for that, that, that seems to be being confused and conflated with policy around controlling economic migration. Yes, the, the whole, the very idea, the very existence of the, the permit and the very existence of the direct provision system when they were sitting recently in 2017 before they introduced the right to work for asylum seekers, they were forced by a court to do so at first. And one of the arguments that the Irish government presented to the courts as to why they were not allowing people to work was they wanted to avoid pool, to avoid pool factors. So they didn't want to attract people to come to Ireland and seek protection in Ireland. But there are more refugees in countries that are poorer than Ireland. Jordan is poor. They have over a million uh, refugees. Nobody sits at home and thinks, 
where could I get the most social welfare benefits? Oh, I'll just travel to that country. Nobody does that. Same thing with Uganda in Africa. It's one of the poorest countries on earth. And yet they have over a million people. I mean, most of their budget comes in the form of foreign aid. But they have over a million people. So that reflects on their values of openness, of actually being willing to do whatever they possibly can with the little resources they have uh, to welcome people who are fleeing persecution and war around the Great Lakes region, for example, other people from the DRC who are running away in Cameroon and Mali, um, they would run to Uganda. So if you only have 5,000 to 6,000 people in direct provision in Ireland, compare that with 1 million, you start to see that it's actually not that much of a bigger deal. Um, a lot of people who, uh, who come to Ireland seeking protection are actually not even, I wouldn't say they would be low-skilled people like there are doctors in direct provision. I've met an S here. There is a doctor in Cork, and there are people who have university qualifications, for example, who wish, who want to work, who are able to work, who are able to work so that they can support themselves. But the state deliberately puts them in a place like this in order to deter others from coming to Sick Island, which is very problematic because they have constitutional rights for status, and we have the EU uh, Charter of Fundamental Human Rights. So when you take a person and you put them in a direct provision center and you force them to share a bedroom, you've already violated their right to privacy. You are forcing them to, uh, I mean, how do you even change, get on to, when you go to a shower, how do you change when there's another stranger in your room? It becomes very difficult to even negotiate sharing that space and the indignity of having to actually strip down naked in front of a stranger is, it fundamentally impairs the right to dignity, and that right is conceptualized in the EU law as an inviolable, and yet you have a, an Irish government that's intent on stripping people of the right to dignity. You have a lot of, of the, the violation on adults, and then you have children as well who live in direct provision centers like this one. This is a family direct provision. It's a family center as well. It's a mixed center. You have single people and, family, and families that live here, and a lot of their children go to the local schools. They see other children and how privileged those children are because their parents are able to work, they are able to buy them things, they are able to go to school outings, they are able to do extracurricular activities. Whereas children who live in direct provision get here in the, live here in the morning, go to school. After school, the bus picks them up and takes them to a direct provision center. They know that they are treated differently in Irish society. They are placed on the margins in Irish society by the state, deliberately so, they are forced to live in poverty. And they come here, there's nothing for them to do except for the homework club. That's it. And they lose their childhood. So, It, it also leads, um, the combination of the very long time that people spend in direct provision centres and the fact that that applies to children as well, it leads to kind of peculiar situations where you might have a child who mostly grew up in Ireland, really, you know, has an Irish accent, does the leaving cert along with all of their friends. And then when they go to try to apply to college, technically they're not Irish or EU citizens, so they're faced with international fees, which are prohibitively expensive. And there's no way of them paying them because their parents are on 2150 a week. Yeah. Um, and they do, the universities do offer scholarships, but it's only like 15 people who are studying in, uh, in UL. There are over 200 people living here. And there's another direct provision center right in the heart of the city center for single men. And so there would be more people. And another one in Foynes, in Mount Trenton. So there would be about 500 people or so in the county alone who live in direct provision, who aren't able to study, um, who are trapped essentially on poverty. And you are then creating a class of, my, of people with migrant backgrounds in Ireland because a lot of the people who are stuck here do eventually get 
permission to live and work in Ireland. And they have to then leave this center and go find work and go find accommodation. And 700 people currently are stuck in general provision because they've been stuck here for years without a legitimate right to work, without a right to, to have access to third level education. And then you get, um, you, you, you have no work experience, you have very little work experience in Ireland, but you've been in Ireland for about five to 10 years or something like that. You have a huge gap on your CV. It becomes very difficult to then integrate into Irish society. You can see state statistics like one that was published by uh, uh, the economic and social uh, finding, research findings that was published by the Economic and Social Research Institute and the Gear Institute in UCD, where they found that people of African uh, descent in Ireland, even if they acquire citizenship, they will have very different outcomes in the labor market. So they are discriminated against. They would find it very difficult to get employment, for example. So you are you have the essential, the Irish government has created a class of mig- of people with migrant background who, are, who live on the margins of Irish society who are actually forced to live on this, who are structurally forced to live in poverty. So I suppose you're arguing that this is actually against the interests of the Irish state because it ends up creating a disenfranchised class of people who aren't able to integrate, who will, you know, with poverty comes all sorts of problems that, you know, build up for the future, including for future generations. Yep. It becomes a, a very big problem, especially when you have young kids who, who grow up with Irish kids in schools and they watch their friends go to college, but they can't go to college. They don't go to college. They watch their friends go and pursue their dreams their dreams are shattered in direct provision. And it would be the same then if you even left direct provision and then were able to get out of this place. And that struggle alone suggests that you will be treated differently even after you've been given that permission to live in Ireland. It, it paints a very nasty picture. Um, it is also aiding then the, the, the very anti-migrant attitudes that we're seeing with so Two hotels already have been banned by people who, are, who don't want to see uh, migrants living in, the, in, the, in those places. It could be one or two people doing that. But the very idea of othering has been completed by taking uh, people of migrant backgrounds and warehousing them in direct provision sentence. It's actually essentially racial segregation because when I walk around here, I see people who look like me, brown people, black people. Um, there are very few white, maybe one or two Georgian people or Albanian, but majority of the people who are living in direct provision are people of color, and those are the people who are marginalized, both deliberately so through the system of direct provision, and um, when they leave direct provision, they still experience that marginalization. I guess what I might ask you is, we painted quite a comprehensive view of the flaws of the system. Do you have ideas, you know, when you're sitting here with not much to do day to day, do do ideas for reform come to you as a trained, you know, public policy person in ways for in which the uh, the system could be improved? The Irish government knows exactly how to improve it because they haven't had direct provision since the beginning of time. So if the Minister of Justice told me he doesn't know how to vindicate the right to privacy or the right to dignity or how he should make sure that the best interest of the child prevails, irrespective of the child's nationality. If the minister told me that, then I would tell him that he shouldn't be a minister of justice and equality because that suggests that he doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, So they know exactly what it is that they are doing by warehousing people here and trying to deter others from coming, by stripping people of their fundamental human rights. They know what the alternative is. They have had the alternative and they don't want to, they are not interested in pursuing the alternative because in their heads, 
it will attract other people. But there's no evidence of such thing. There's absolutely zero evidence to suggest that a person will fly from their country just to get access to Irish welfare or any welfare for that matter. Because majority of the people who fling persecution end up in countries that have very little welfare support for refugees. Uh, so you're saying the supposed pull factor is a myth? It, it is a myth. It's an invented, it's an imagined uh, uh, reality by the Irish state that because whenever they want, any, anybody wants to improve the asylum process, um, they always try to find some restrictions like the right to work. The person who took the Irish government to work would not be allowed on the current permit. And yet he won that court case. And the very idea that he, the, 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 the court did not need to make a judgment on the, on the case, but the court made that judgment because the court knew that there were other people who were uh, in the same position as him. I mean, he had already gotten a refugee status by the time he got him, so he was allowed to work by the time the court made that decision. So the idea, the idea then that the Irish government doesn't know how to vindicate the rights of people who come to Ireland seeking protection, uh, I don't buy that for a second. They know exactly how to do it. The one thing they could do, for example, is just replace the temporary uh, residence card that they give to a person when they apply for protection with a temporary stamp form. A stamp for immigration stamp allows a person to work for a person who is not and are an EU citizen to work in Ireland full-time without much restrictions. All employers know what that is. If you go to an employer and you say you have a stamp for, they know exactly what it is. They'll just ask you, how long is it valid for? That's all. But you, you'll then be able, if they replace that card with, that, with a, a temporary stamp for, while they process, the, it could be valid for 12 months because they take for a very long time uh, to process the decision. So while a person waits for a decision, they would have uh, the right to work. They would, the stamp for, again, would allow them to have a driving license, for example, because then you can suddenly prove your residency. residency. But they don't want to do that because they, don't want to, they are not interested in improving the asylum system. And it's increasingly being used to, to ensure that businesses make profit out of the misery that is direct provision because you had a lot of uh, hotels. They just advertised even more hotels recently. Just, just to make clear for people who might not be familiar with the system, the private companies come in here because this is outsourced. The direct provision centers are outsourced. So the catering contracts would be fulfilled by the companies and, you know, people would be put into hotels and so on. So it's, it's private companies. So you say that they're, they're, the private companies involved have, in, in effect, become a lo- lobby group, which the government wishes to please and doesn't want to take the business away from. Of course, they wouldn't want to take the business away from because they, if you look at how they treat homeless Irish people, they put them in hotels too. It's the same exact. It's just the same. It's an extension of that system, but the direct provision system is one for asylum seekers. So you're just warehousing people in hotels and BNBs in old disused buildings, and in uh, this one is purpose built. It was built for the very purpose of accommodating asylum seekers. Built with prefabs, gets quite cold. You get a lot of those businesses who have vested interest in keeping the system running, and some of them have actually been ex councillors. The people who own, there was one councillor who, for example, who ran a direct provision centre and owned one. So you can imagine then the, if you were to campaign against that direct provision, you'd be met with a lot of pushback. When students, for example, were campaigning against uh, Aramak, which runs this direct provision centre in UL, Aramak issued a pamphlet and said, oh, but we care about the well-being, uh, we provide comfort. I've never experienced any comfort since I got here for over a year. 
I've never experienced any kabbalah. Why would I be comfortable sharing a bedroom with a homophobic man? How would I be comfortable there? So the, when you then campaign against the system, you are met with a lot of pushback, one from the politicians themselves who have no interest in improving the system, and then you have these businesses who have a vested interest in making sure that they can, because they do make a lot of money out of the direct provision system. The hotel recently turned into a direct provision center in Wicklow. The owner said that he had lost 200,000 euro in one year because the hotel operates seasonally. So when it's in season, it's in summer, you get a lot of tourists coming in. But throughout the year, you may not have, in winter, for example, you may not have a lot of guests. But if you turn it into a direct provision center, you have one high occupancy because there are asylum seekers coming in and you have guaranteed income throughout the year. So you have high occupancy, high, um, that guarantees income, whereas in the hotel system, you wouldn't have. So they do make a lot of money out of the homeless and direct provision system. Uh, but uh, if you then, a community group like a movement of asylum seekers are involved with Masi, the movement of asylum seekers, uh, advocating for change, it becomes very difficult because a lot of them would have necessary resources to do that. The state has a lot of resources, controls a lot of resources in terms of issuing press statements. They have spins, they can call journalists, and they have access to them, and they can spin. Every time there's something that happens, they issue a spin. Like here, the ones, once a mother who has refused a simple slice of bread, and the child had been sick throughout the day, was vomiting, and when started recovering. He was hungry. He wanted something to eat. And we have meal times here. So when he went, the mother went in the middle of the night and asked the security guard for a slice of bread in the canteen. Would you open the canteen and give me a slice of bread? My child is very hungry. He's just recovering. They refused. So you can imagine then um, when a government goes in and thinks that you can actually spin that. There is no amount of, spe- uh, of spin Will change that will take away the indignity of not being able to provide a simple slice of bread to your child when your child is hungry. So for us, there would there wouldn't be a way to uh, improve the direct provision system. But if you do abolish it, great. That's what we're campaigning for: to abolish the system of direct provision and restore the dignity of people, allow people to work so that they can support themselves. We're not invalids. Like I can work. A lot of the people here are willing to work, and in fact, the government knows that a lot of people are working illegally. Because when we did, uh, we, they were invited to an information session on the right to work when they launched it uh, last year. The principal officer for asylum policy told us that now that we have the right to work, you can stop working on the black market. And I was like, ah, so you know exactly that people are working uh, illegally. And for women, it's even worse because there was one uh, who told the court that she had to sell sexual favors to support her son. So you're forcing people into positions where they have to... Um, where they're being exploited. exploited. Yes, they have no choice but to be ex- to allow themselves to be exploited through either work or sexual exploitation in that sense. Now, you alluded to earlier that there had been some planned direct provision centres that were set on fire here in Ireland recently. Uh, obviously, that's a it's a tense environment, an escalation in the tension, I would say. And the other thing that strikes me as somewhat ironic is that um, you're kind of on the same side in that you don't want the direct position centers to exist either, but for different reasons, I suppose. What is it like in the wake of those fires? Do you, do you feel that your impression of Ireland is changing at all from when you first came here as a student? Uh, I do understand. I, I was studying xenophobia, so I understand exactly uh, what, what, 
well, I can understand what went on there because you do get um, small-minded, ignorant people who would go out and do something like that. It doesn't take the whole community of Ruski to burn down that hotel. It was only one person or two people, maybe four, who threw some um, flammable uh, liquids and things like that into the hotel. So it didn't take a lot of people. The majority of the people who live in that town are quite open. I was there, um, met with some of them. Um, they were quite open. In fact, we went to mass um, before we had the rally there. Um, the people there are quite nice and friendly. Um, they are quite open and welcoming to migrant backgrounds. And there's another family, black family that lives in the town. So it gets scary for us when we live in a direct provision center like this because, one, um, some of the direct provision centers are well known for the reasons that they are on, in, in, covered in the media because of the stories that come out, like when a person was to refuse a slice of bread, it was covered by the media. And Mount Stranger is notorious for being an incarceration center for single men. So I was quite scared to get on the bus because, you know, we never know what's going to happen. You saw the road itself with the bushes. You can't even walk there. Like It's so narrow. It's not, it's not pedestrian friendly. You can't walk. Typical Irish country road with no pavements and just uh, bushes that come in narrowly and pretty much one car can pass maybe two to, at a pinch yeah so it becomes very difficult then to live because we are segregated we have to use only our buses we can't afford to use any other buses even if we could afford the other buses there aren't any that come to this part of town so it's quite scary because somebody could actually just target the bus instead of targeting buildings because they wouldn't have easy access to this building so it, it's frightening for us to watch something like that happening because a lot of people who are in direct provision have fled violence and persecution in the country. We know what it means. I lived in South Africa. I lived through xenophobic violence where people from other Africa, where my, uh, migrants from other African countries were beaten. Um, they were beaten, we were stoned to death, they were hacked to death, they were burnt alive. So I've seen what it can do uh, when that violence starts targeting people. So it is quite frightening. But it hasn't changed my view of Irish people in the sense that I... Um, I've worked a lot with Irish people, for example, during uh, the past uh, Christmas season. We had a Christmas party for children. We had to collect. We asked children who live here to write down their wishes, what it is that they wish for on Christmas. And we circulated lists around and we asked people to buy gifts. We got way more than we bargained for. We ended up sending to two or three other direct provision centers because all the kids got all the things that they wanted for and more. Um, so I'm well aware of the generosity of Irish people, but the problem is the Irish state, the Irish government. Bulanlani Mufanko, thank you so much. Cool, thank you. Thank you, Nani. And that's it from this edition of Half Pints. Like I mentioned, if you want to hear more about direct provision in Irish society today, you can check out our full episode on the topic from the end of season three. Sloan, everyone. <laughs>